my privilege to bring the message to you today. We're continuing in our series in the pastoral epistles. Well, we're finishing our series in the pastoral epistles today. So we're going to be in Titus chapter 3. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and flip there. Uh, yeah, this is the final chapter in Paul's little letter to Titus. So it's my, I, I'm, we're going to try to walk through this together. We're going to try to sum up a little bit of what's been going on in the whole series so far and, and try to cover all that stuff today, hopefully in one, in one go. So let's flip to this. I have, I think we'll have the words on the screen here. This will be in the ESV translation, so you can follow along on the screen if you so desire. Paul writes this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to see me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help the cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how uh, your message to us is preserved for us in your scriptures. And we do thank you for the, the... privilege, the gift of what it means to belong to the church, to belong to your people, um, to belong to your, your son's body, and how we have this book that we can, we can look at and we can see who you are, your character, your heart for us, um, just the outline of your plan of salvation, and just how beautiful that is. And, and I ask that for all of us here, we can have our eyes open in new ways to see uh, wonders out of your word, and we can behold new things out of it. And uh, God, just give us a sensitive heart and spirit to be able to hear what you have to say to us. Um, For some of us, this will be brand new. For some of us, this will be very familiar. But all the same, Lord, we need you desperately. We're needy people before you, and we can do nothing apart from you. So be with us. Let the words of our mouth and and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So, uh... I'm going to give a disclaimer on the front end here of this message. This is a big chapter, just like how everything we've been studying, we've been going through a chapter at a time, and each time you kind of have to pass over some things and and spend more time on other things. So this is a big text. We can't look at nearly everything as closely as as we ought to, really. We we, we have to kind of pick our way of doing this. So we're going to mostly focus on the first half 
of this chapter here, the first seven-ish verses or so. And my attempt at being organized here, at being, at being uh, trying to hold things together, I'm going to try to put a little alliterative uh, uh, headings here. So we're going to have three kind of things we're looking at here in, in the first half. So I'm going to sum this up as the first bit of Titus 3 here is the grace of God for repentance, the grace of God for rescue, the grace of God for regeneration. Repentance, rescue, and regeneration. And, we'll, and I just think these, this is kind of a way for us to remember what Paul is mostly getting at here and, just, and, and the heart behind what he's saying. So let's look at this uh, in order here. First, the grace of God for repentance in Titus 3. The first uh, few verses is where this comes out. Paul's wrapping up his letter, and he says to Titus, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. In other words, uh, he's saying, Titus, the way I'm putting forward for you and the church is not the way of anarchism. Okay, It's not the way of violent upheaval and subversion. It's, It's a way of peaceful obedience to civil authorities, is what he's saying here. And we have to understand... We have to understand that when Paul and the Christian church in this time, when they're making these gigantic statements about about Jesus, they're making these lofty statements about this man who has been raised from the dead, Okay, the loftiest statement you can make, this man who is God, who is the true Lord, the true Savior, he's this one who offers eternal life to those who share union with him. When, when, When Paul and the church are saying these sorts of things, this could justifiably cause some people to think, okay, Okay, well, well then, we got this. Out with the old order, in with the new. Okay, we know the true Lord. We don't need governments. We don't need rulers. We don't need any of this sort of order. We have the secret of the universe here in the gospel. And this is something that people were tempted to believe and think. So let's, let's, let's get this show on the road, here and now. We already know the secret that we need to know. We already know how this works. And to them, Paul says, okay, guys, hold on. That's not going to accomplish the goal. That's not going to accomplish the good that you think it will. Your role now is to be submissive to the civil rulers that God has ordained. And you see the same point made very strongly in Romans uh, chapter 13. Paul says a similar thing there. Revolutions aimed at utopia at this point are not going to do the trick. There's a tension between the already and not yet of what God has accomplished in the gospel. And and we really do need to be reminded, uh, we could make a whole message about this, we need to be reminded that there have been many people, many movements that could have stood to listen to Paul uh, very seriously on this one. This has not always been a thing that people have remembered, that this whole idea isn't the way of anarchy, not the way of some violent sort of revolution. It's the way of submission to order and that sort of thing. On the other hand, though, we, we need to keep this in tension. On the other hand, Paul here is, of course, not giving a command for, for blind obedience to civil authorities in all matters, full stop. There's no way that he's doing that. You look at a text like uh, Acts 529, where Peter and the apostles, they, they directly tell the religious council, we must obey God rather than men. So it's a completely different thing going on there. And so, so there's certainly never any question in the whole of Scripture and in the whole New Testament about whether civil authorities or, or these government rulers that God has ordained should be submitted to over and against God. That, that wouldn't be a question ever for the biblical authors. So we need to hold those things in tension. So, I'm saying this is under this heading of grace of God for repentance. What does this have to do with repentance? Well, if you read on, Paul's continuing to give these commands. He says, Remind them to speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. And again, it's it's really amazing that the times when Paul says this command of be gentle. 
He'll say in the most heated of scenarios, the most tense of contexts, he'll remind gentleness. Be gentle and uh, show perfect courtesy to everyone. Then he says this magic word that we should all pay attention to whenever we're reading our Bibles. He says, for. For we ourselves were once foolish, once disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. And we need to see what he's doing here with this, with this for statement. He's taking these commands, and you can, you, he's taking these commands mentioned here, and you can make a case that he's maybe summing up the commands that he's given throughout the whole letter so far. He's taking these commands, and he's rooting it all in, saying, this lifestyle, these things I'm commanding you to, needs to be driven by and rooted in the sober awareness of what you once were. Of what we are apart from grace. For we were once this way. Remind them of these things, Titus. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, hateful. He's saying you don't preach the gospel. You don't remind people of these things, Titus, because you're pretty clever, because you're pretty gifted, because you're pretty special, because you're pretty good at what you do here. He's not saying that. He's saying you do all of this because you know who you would be apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. Hold that in your heart. Hold that in your mind. Let that drive you. You'd be no better than the most vile Cretan. Remember, we talked about how he's saying these things about Cretans and who they are. And he's saying you'd be no different than them, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm sure many of you have, have heard this saying. There's, a, there's this common expression, there, but for the grace of God, go I. It's kind of common phrase. And it's, it's this sort of pious poetic sounding little expression and I'm not sure in what context you guys have said it or heard it or, or commonly heard it said but most of the times I've heard it said it, see, it seems to be in this way that's kind of either somewhat patronizing or somewhat fatalistic you know kind of between these two things so you know you're looking down on somebody boy I'm glad I'm not them there but for the grace of God go I you know that sort of thing or on the other hand it's just saying okay life's out of my hands I can't compete with fate there but for the grace of God go I and it's this sort of stoic, deterministic sort of thing. But uh, the origin of this phrase is really different, really interesting. John Bradford was an English Puritan, and in the year 1555, he was burned at the stake uh, as part of Queen Mary's campaign to purge England of Protestants and Protestantism. And he was 45 when he died, and he'd, he'd only been a genuine Christian for six years. But in that time, in those six years, he'd become known for just embodying this daily attitude of repentance. He was known as this man who just embodied this attitude of genuine, humble repentance. The whole idea of repentance, of turning from self, turning from sin to Christ, to righteousness, this for him, and maybe for some of us here, this for him previously had been an, an initiatory sort of thing. Right? This is what you do to get in you repent. You repent and believe. But the six years before his death, he'd become seized by this idea of repentance being a daily part of the Christian life. There's, a, there's fascinating things you can read about these prayer journals that he kept and just the way that this was such a daily part of his life. Is this, this, aware for repent, this aware of a need for repentance in his life. And according to his biographer, 
when Bradford would see a criminal being led to his execution in London's town square, he would point to the person and he would say, there, before the grace of God, goes John Bradford. And you, you might think, okay, hold on, isn't that sort of the patronizing way you're talking about? He's looking, he's looking at somebody who has a bad situation and he's saying, there, before the grace of God, go I. But the difference, very important difference with Bradford was that, and we know this about him, he was so captured by this sense and this awareness of how prone he himself was to sin, to evil, to darkness, that he was compelled to recognize that if it weren't for grace, if it weren't for Jesus, he would be in the same position. His, his biographer writes this, Bradford would exclaim this phrase, knowing that the same evil principles were in his own heart that led this person to his shameful end. There before the grace of God go I. And this is what Paul is getting at in this section here. Repentance, recognition of who you are apart from grace, we once were, needs to be one of the foundations of Christian living and one of the key motives for evangelism and mission. Absolutely, has to be. Because if you think about it, 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 it needs to be this way because otherwise our lives and our witness devolve into this sort of uh, tribalism. Okay, this sort, of, this sort of thing where we want to be right just for the sake of being right. We love being right. We like believing the right things, having the right stances on issues, and that's the main thing that drives us. This happens to all of us. We know this. We're very aware about this. You know, we might, we might talk with other people about the Christian faith. We might try to share our faith with them. But it's not rooted in this, uh, this spirit of, of self-aware humility and repentance. Instead, it's rooted in just wanting to justify our position and hopefully come out on top of the exchange. One more thing on this, and then we'll move on. Uh, sometimes in church contexts, uh, people can hear, okay, well, they can hear this stuff and they can say, well, okay, I come from a Christian home. I come from a good Christian family. I come from a good Christian tradition. I, I don't really have this formally at one time. I once was this way. I don't have that sort of thing that I can really say. But we need to remember that Paul's point here isn't so much chronological and temporal. You know, it's not, it's not so much this idea of, okay, on Tuesday you were an unbeliever, Wednesday you came to faith, you were this way on Tuesday, you're this way on Wednesday. There's a bit of that going on, and there's lots of places in Scripture where Paul does make that point and other authors make that point. But I would say that the point here is more so the plight, the common lot of the human race apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. And, and you know this because the things that Paul lists here are these universal sins. He's saying this is this common way that we were apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. And so, let me just humbly suggest to all of us here that this, this can perhaps be one of the temptations to be aware of when we come from a good Christian tradition, a good Christian home. You know, we, as much of a blessing as that is, it absolutely is a gigantic blessing. But sometimes what can happen is we really miss out on that real sense of humility. There before the grace of God go I. Many of us know you talk to somebody who's been through some very serious rough things, does, wasn't blessed to have that heritage of faith, and you know that they're aware that it's not, it's the only reason that they're at where they're at is because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And we all need to have that, regardless of your background. And that's what Paul is getting at in this verse. I'll read you uh, one of my favorite quotations about this whole subject. This is by Thomas Akempis. Maybe you've heard of him. He wrote a famous book called The Imitation of Christ. He's writing in the 15th century, and this is so good, so just listen to this. This is about this whole idea of humility. Uh, Thomas Akempis writes this. He says, A true understanding and humble estimate of oneself is the highest 
and most valuable of all lessons. To take no account of oneself, but always to think well and highly of others is the highest wisdom and perfection. Should you see another person openly doing evil, carrying out a wicked purpose, do not on that account consider yourself better than him, for you cannot tell how long you yourself will remain in a state of grace. We are all frail. Consider none more frail than yourself. Love that phrase at the end there. So that's number one. Grace of God for repentance. Let's move on to number two here. The grace of God for rescue. Paul's giving this this picture of humanity apart from grace in verse three and he ends it with this, this line of we were hateful and hated by others. Different translations say that a different way. So he says that and then he says in verse four, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, according to his own mercy. So we'll just stop there. Here, here, in this section, we have a similar statement to what we saw last week in Titus 2. Okay, in Titus 2, there's this, there's this uh, epiphany sort of statement where it says, For when the grace of God appeared. And this is a similar sort of thing. This, this idea of appearing is happening here. Except for it's a contrast. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And the reason why I'm, I'm giving this heading uh, of the grace of God for rescue is because of Paul's almost abrupt use of the word save here. He saved us. He, he doesn't say we were foolish, deceptive, hateful, but Jesus showed up and he taught us how to live a more enlightened life. He showed up and he taught us what to do. Jesus did teach us what to do. Jesus did show up and show us how to live the life that he wanted us to live. But that's not what Paul says here. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us. He rescued us. And we need to note the significance of this in what Paul is saying here. He's reflecting on what he was, what the church was, what humanity was, apart from grace, and then immediately he turns to God's act of saving of rescue. We, fallen humankind, the sinful, selfish, confused lot that we are, we need nothing less than someone to save us. And he's aware of this. And as I was studying this, it just, it struck me that I really seriously sometimes wonder if we've relegated savior language so much to the you know, religious sphere, the kind of Christian jargon sphere, to the extent that we, not only, not only do we forget its power and its potency, but I think just in, in a sense of worship, we forget to be on our knees in gratitude to the God who's a saving God, a God who rescues those needing rescue. Needing rescue is the key thing there. You know, if you, if you go up to someone with no church background at all, at all and, you, and you talk to them about salvation or God being a savior. We were just talking about this in the sermon prequel class and it was a really interesting thing because we were saying, how do you explain this to somebody who has no background in this? These words mean nothing to them. You know, if, if you go up to them and you say, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Aside from sounding kind of corny and pushy and whatever, you're, you're going to be confusing. You're going to be basically entirely incoherent because this, these aren't categories that we use anymore at all. What's a Lord? What's a Savior? What do you mean by that? That's just religious speak that I've heard before. And so for the most part, I think we've thrown some of these terms into the junk drawer of Christian jargon. 
We pull them out sometimes in our songs and in the way that we talk to each other, but they don't really have any traction in the real world in a lot of ways, or at least the way we use them, they often don't. Yet, God as Savior is an incredibly, incredibly important and central theme. Not only in Scripture, but just in the book of Titus itself. We should notice this, and maybe you guys have seen this as we've been walking through this. God as Savior is incredibly important. Look at this. This is very fascinating here. Titus is three chapters. Titus is three chapters, and in Titus' three chapters, the word Savior is used six times. Twice in each chapter, and with each use. Like, I, I have no idea. Sometimes I wonder, is Paul doing this stuff on purpose? Is he wanting people to catch on to this later? Maybe, we're not sure. But he uses it six times, twice in each chapter. With each use, Paul alternates between calling God Savior and calling Jesus Savior. And they're always in close proximity to each other. And it's this really amazing thing where, where Paul has this amazingly high view of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. Paul's comfortable with equating Jesus with God in the sense that he ascribes this act of salvation to both. Paul knew that the God of the universe was a saving God. And we need to gratefully and seriously remember the same thing. And to be perfectly honest, and this this was another thing we talked about in our class upstairs, to be perfectly honest, we can't ever possibly be grateful for this unless we realize what we're saved from. And that's part of what Paul is getting at in verse 3 here. He's saying, this is who we once were. Formerly, once were. But when the goodness of our Savior appeared, he saved us, rescued us from all of that. The book of Colossians, uh, Paul says that he transferred us from the domain of darkness. Transferred us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son who he loves. This idea of rescue, transfer, a very just really stark difference. And this is just one small vision of what salvation is, what God's people are saved from. Uh, Just to fire through a couple of these, elsewhere in scripture, we see that believers are saved from several things. Or, uh, I don't know, maybe a better way of putting it is, is several aspects of the same thing. Uh, scripture talks about how we're saved from our natural condition of being mastered by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're mastered by, or we're saved from the fears that a sinful life gives rise to. We're saved from the many habits that were part of a sinful life. We're saved from our former position under the wrath of God, our former position under the dominion of sin, the domination of sin, and our former position under the power of death. And I just really think that this needs to be something that we're fully aware of. Our God is a God who graciously saves. And when we get our minds and our hearts around the magnitude of these things that I just listed off just quickly, these are the most gigantic things, but we're quickly firing through them. When we get our minds and hearts around the magnitude of these things from which we're rescued, or from which rescue is available to us, it changes things. It can't not. It absolutely changes things. Our God is a God who saves. And we, we don't have time to get into this too much, but as you see in this text, this salvation happens not, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It, it, like it's this beautiful contrast that Paul is getting at. He's making it clear that once you get that God is a saving God, you start to understand his character. You start to understand just who it is that we're dealing with here not according to works done by us, in righteousness, he even says. Your most righteous of works, not even those, but according to his own mercy, 
entirely. Finally, number three, the grace of God for regeneration. Within this, uh, this beautiful but when epiphany passage of uh, verses four to six, we see this remarkable bit where Paul says, he saved us according to his own mercy through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. These two key words should just jump out at us, I think. Uh, regeneration, renewal. They're these unique words that you, you come across the ideas of them in Scripture lots, but this is just so clearly right there. Parallel statements. Regeneration and renewal. And the significance of what Paul is getting at here could occupy us for a long time. We could talk about this very much. The word regeneration literally means rebirth. Some of your translations will, will reflect that. So what Paul is getting at here is that it's according to nothing but God's mercy that he's saved us, and he's done this through the washing of rebirth, this washing that is rebirth, as well as this renewal that the Holy Spirit enacts. It's such a beautiful picture. It's such a meaningful picture. So, just looking at these parallel ideas of regeneration and renewal, uh, we're an evangelical church, you know, that's the, that's the broad family we belong to. We're a Mennonite Brethren church, but broadly speaking, we're an evangelical church. And one of the hallmark teachings of the evangelical church is that rebirth is the basic foundation for what it means to belong to God. For what it means to enter into the people of God. You must be born again. And this emphasis comes from the book of John chapter 3 where Jesus says, you must be born again. We're taking his advice on this one. We're going with him. You must be born again. In context, in the, in the chapter, the third chapter of the book of John, uh, Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus, this religious leader. And this guy is, is listening to Jesus and he's trying to fit who Jesus is into his preconceived categories. You know, he's trying to understand, okay, we get it that you're a teacher, but what are you doing here? And he's trying to make sense of this. And Jesus just says to him, no, 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 no. It's not going to happen that way. You don't just rub your chin and and look at me and ponder me, try to figure me out that way. It's not going to work. You must be born again. It's an amazingly powerful statement. And this isn't, I want you to understand this, this isn't just some metaphor pointing to some other sort of thing. Okay, it is a metaphor in the sense that, you know, Nicodemus says, am I supposed to crawl back into my mother? What are you talking about here? And so Jesus says, no, 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 you're not getting it. So it is a metaphor in that sense. You get that. But it is this very real thing in the sense that this is something that God does. Okay, this is something God does. This incredibly powerful thing that God actually causes to happen upon people in their real lives. This renewal, this regeneration. And it's a gift that is received always. Every time this word shows up in the New Testament, it's always a passive, you know, It's a passive form of the word. It's never to regenerate yourself. It's be regenerated, be rebirthed, be made new. And you see that in that John 3 text. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, you need to see to it that this happens for you. He says, it is necessary for you to be born again. And when Jesus says this, he's he's not bringing this up out of the blue. This isn't the founding of evangelicalism right there in, in John chapter 3. He's not bringing this out of the blue. He's fulfilling a promise. Because God had long ago promised a time when he would give a new heart to his people. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 26. God, God is speaking. God says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you 
You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. A new spirit I will put within you. I will, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God knows that what we so desperately need isn't a new set of rules, isn't a new code of ethics, isn't even another chance or a second opportunity. We need a new heart. Uh, I said earlier that humanity needs nothing less than a savior, someone to save us. But even a savior alone, even a savior doesn't do the job if after rescuing us from the dominion of darkness, we walk right back in willingly. This is one of the shortcomings of, of Protestantism as a whole and evangelicalism is that we're so focused on the getting out of the dominion of darkness that we forget what do we even do once we're here. And that's what this idea of regeneration is all about. We need new loves. Once we're here, we need new loves. We need new affections. We need new things that we care about. You need a new heart to have that happen. God promised a time, in Ezekiel, God promised a time when he would give it. Jesus, in John 3, he he said that the time has come to receive it. And Paul, in our passage, is marveling at the fact that it's available. Happened. Regeneration is possible. This new heart is possible for all those who trust Christ. Now we we need to be careful when you when you talk about the idea of rebirth, regeneration, renewal. We need to be careful to point out that receiving this new heart, experiencing this new birth, which is very important, it, it does not equate to some sort of flawless sinlessness, perfection. Obviously not. It can't possibly mean that. This is still a fallen world that we live in. There are still battles to be fought in the spiritual realm. But this idea of regeneration does mean something very important. It does mean something very important. And it connects to this whole emphasis on good works that we've pointed out throughout this series on the pastoral epistles. This truth of regeneration means that if we are to look at our lives, if we are to look at the way we live, if we are to look at our hearts, the things we want, the things we desire, We need to see a a decisive, even if it's gradual, even if it's very slight, we need to see a decisive growth in grace and Christian maturity. The theologian uh, Donald Blesch puts it like this. He's talking about the new birth and how you kind of, how you see it, how you understand it. He says this, The new birth is not accompanied by rational guarantees, but there are signs which are persuasive to the eyes of faith. Foremost among these signs our heartfelt repentance for sins, a sense of the love of God, a new power over temptation, and a new love of one's neighbor. These are the persuasive signs to the eyes of faith. So, some questions for all of us. Do you feel a genuine sense of grief over your own sins and run to Christ for restoration? Do you know the Father's great, unbounded, untamable love for you? Do you experience a new power over temptation? Not not to the point of perfection, not to the point of this flawlessness, but a, a real, genuine new desire to grow in strength over temptation. Do you love the people around you? Do you love the people you interact with on a daily basis? Do you, do you literally love the people around you? 
These are questions worth asking ourselves. And yes, they're, they're very serious questions. They're very serious questions. Jesus says, unless one is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Jesus' first encounter with this guy, and that's the line that he draws. Unless one is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. So there's definitely something serious at stake here. We can't change that around. We can't sugarcoat that. But, but, the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, has appeared. And this is available. A new heart is available. We need to know that. We talked uh, last week about the past, present, and future aspects of salvation, of how that passage last week kind of talked about all these sorts of things. But this passage here, if you look at this, Paul emphasizes the fact that it's done. Past. He saved us. When the goodness and loving kindness appeared, he saved us. It's accomplished. It's done. According to his mercy, this is what he's done. So it's this beautiful, it's, it's this sense of assurance that he's giving there. It's something that's accomplished. Not something you need to strive for, something you need to receive as a gift. Like I said, this, this passive idea of receiving this new heart that God wants to give to us. So in closing, uh, this, this passage here talks about the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appearing. This grace appearing. And we've said that it's this grace for repentance, it's this grace for rescue, it's a grace for regeneration. So as we respond with singing, and I'll call up the worship team at this time, as we respond to God in thankfulness and singing, let's, let's remember what we are apart from grace, what we once were, this point that Paul is making there. Let's remember that our God is a saving God. And let's remember this beautiful truth that God gives new birth always to people who come to him in faith. I feel that the seriousness of those questions that, that, that we were talking about, that you have to ask yourself, that we ought to be asking ourselves as Christians, they're, they're very serious, they're very heavy, but we need to balance that with this, this amazing, gracious truth that God absolutely receives the one who comes to him in faith all the time. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so as, as we ask those questions of ourselves, uh, the thing is, only you know your honest answers to those questions. Really, only you know the answers to that. And it's, and it's a very heavy thing to say, but it's a very real thing to say that you can show all the external signs of belonging to God. You can be from the right family, the right line. You can go to church every single Sunday. You can give money. You can do all these sorts of things and not be born again. And that's a very clear theme all throughout Scripture. In fact, sometimes it's the people who think and are the most sure that they're in the right standing that aren't. We need to have ears to hear that and we need to understand that. It's a theme that runs throughout Scripture, but this isn't what we dwell on. This isn't what we obsess over. Because the beautiful thing is God absolutely does not withhold the grace of renewal from those who come to him in faith. Psalm 51 says, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You will never reject. Pray with me. Almighty God, we do thank you that your grace has appeared. It's something that's happened in history. And Lord, I I just ask that you can help us to be people who who reckon with that fact, who 
regardless of the challenges that we may be going through, regardless of the, the struggles that we might be facing, that we can be people who have our eyes open to reality. And the reality is that your grace has appeared. And Lord, I do pray that for those here who do need to have this new heart given to them, that you can do so. Lord, we recognize that that's your act of grace. You do that according to your own mercy. And I do ask that you can show your mercy in that way, even today. Your son said that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And I I want us, I want everybody in this room to be people who see the kingdom of God. So Lord, we just ask that you can be merciful to us. We ask that you can help us to be people who are grateful for the truth that you're a saving God, your God who rescues. And we ask that you can shape us into being a repentant people who understand what it means to daily take up our cross and follow you, to daily turn from ourself to you. So teach us these things, God, please. We just desire to walk uh, according to your spirit and to know you. We love you and we know that you love us. Pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ.